hello listeners. Today we will be speaking about World Suicide Prevention Day, which is an annual event that takes place on the 10th of September. According to local statistics, there are 23 completed suicides in South Africa every day and a further 230 attempted suicides every 24 hours. Therefore, there is almost one suicide for every hour and on a global scale, it happens every 40 seconds. It is therefore paramount and our social responsibility that we work on preventative solutions to this problem. So what is the solution? Firstly, talking about mental health, breaking through the stigma and allowing a safe and secure platform for those who are suffering to talk openly about it and reach out for help. To help me achieve this today, I have Daryl Brown as our guest talking about suicide prevention and sharing his story. He is a man of more words and is an active ambassador for mental health, dis- disabilities and the LGBT community. Daryl, thank you for joining us. It's an absolute honor having the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Daryl. Um, yeah, thanks for shining a light on this, this topic. Great. So to start off, why is it important for you to be an ambassador? Um, when I was... Um, about 23 years old in 2013, I was living in London and I attempted suicide by jumping in front of one of the underground trains. Um, you know, after everyone found out about my suicide attempt, several of my friends told me that they had been struggling with depression too, um, and some of them had even been in therapy for a while. So we'd all been going through similar experiences, but we never spoke about it because we were ashamed or we felt weak or we thought we just had to deal with it on our own. And I think there are so many people out there who will never ask for help or get the support that they need because they're scared of how their family or friends or employers will treat them. Um, and I realized the only way we can break the stigma around depression and make it okay for people to ask for the help they need and not feel ashamed is for people who've been through it like me um, to kind of be open and show that one can still have a full and rich life after dealing with depression. So, being in the mental health and well-being industry for many years, I know you very well, Daryl, but um, I don't think our listeners know you as, as well as I do. So, please take us through your journey and, and what happened. Um, so, I have been dealing with depression for many years, since I was a teenager, um, and I've been bullied at school for being gay, and I think that's kind of... Um, exacerbated things so you know I kept on thinking that okay when I leave school things are going to be better Um, I didn't talk to anyone I didn't think that my friends or family would be able to help I didn't want to burden them with something that they wouldn't be able to deal with Um, and I also kind of thought you know everyone else is dealing with their their own issues why can't I deal with mine Um, and I never spoke to a professional about it because I just thought you know no psychologist is going to be able to say something that's suddenly going to make everything better and solve all my problems um, so I just thought you know I have to pull myself together and um, deal with this and so I kept hoping that when I leave school things are going to be better when I leave when I get a job things are going to be better yeah. um, and eventually I moved to London um, and that was kind of like my last ditch attempt to, to solve my depression and to, to cure myself I even came out as gay and I, um, you know, I thought that that would would cure my depression, but it didn't. So when I was living in London, I had my first romantic relationship. 
um, and I was studying there. And my relationship ended. I finished my course. Um, I didn't do quite as well as I'd hoped. And I, you know, I'd really wanted to to stay and work in London. Um, I'd been there on holiday a few times before I went over to study, and it just felt like. Um, for the first time, you know, I felt at home and I felt that I could just be myself. But I couldn't get a, a work visa there and I felt like I was going to have to come back to Cape Town um, with my tail between my legs and move back in with my parents. And I just felt like such a failure and I felt, um, I felt really hopeless and I had no kind of hope for the future. I just felt so tired of waiting for this one day when everything would would be okay, um, and not knowing when that day was ever going to happen. I was exhausted, and I just, um, I just wanted to kind of go to sleep and never wake up. Um, and so I gave my landlord a month's notice. I planned my suicide attempt. I told all my friends in London that I was coming back to South Africa. Um, I deactivated my Facebook account so that none of them would would know because I didn't want any of them to feel guilty. Um, and on the day that I was supposed to leave my, my flat, I just packed up all my stuff. I went down to the nearest tube station and I waited for the, the platform to be empty and then I jumped in front of the train. Um, and you know, after, after my suicide attempt, I was diagnosed with depression. I was put onto antidepressants. Um, and I spent many months in hospital, you know, having surgeries and doing skin grafts because I lost both of my legs in the suicide attempt. Um, and it was only, um, I think, when I moved to a different hospital to do my physical rehab, I met a, psychi- a psychologist rather for the first time. And it was the first time that I'd had some kind of like talking therapy. And I spoke to, when I started speaking to her, you know, I was talking the way I always spoke to everyone else, wearing that mask of everything is fine, um, you know, and I would only kind of tell her half stories about things that had happened in my life. But she saw through all of that immediately, and within like five minutes, she, it was as if she had been inside of my head, she'd known kind of what people had said to me, how I felt in certain situations, um, what I was thinking, and that was a major turning point for me because, you know, after my suicide attempt, the first few months, I had no hope. I was so angry and um, hopeless with the whole situation. You know, I kind of felt like I couldn't do life before, and now I've lost my legs as well. Like, how am I supposed to do life now? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I was totally kind of despairing of the future. And then when I sat down and spoke to that psychologist for the first time and realized you know, I'm not crazy, I'm not the only one who's ever felt this way, um, but is someone who really understands the new strain to kind of help me and lead me out of this. Um, that was a major turning point for me, and I finally felt like, okay, there's some kind of hope. I, there is a chance that I can get through this and manage my depression and, you know, have a life. Yeah, so, so it sounds like actually getting professional help, speaking to someone about, um, and being open about it actually, about what you were going through and your depression, sounds like it saved your life. Absolutely, um, and I think that would be my first piece of advice to anyone who is struggling with depression or anxiety or um, you know, contemplating suicide, is talk to someone. Mm. Um, 
you know, even if it's just a friend or family member, um, you know, opening up and sharing that burden with someone um, can can really relieve some of the pressure that you're feeling. Um, but often friends and family, unless they're, they're trained um, in mental health, they won't really know what to say or how to, you know, they can be there and they can support you, but they won't be able to, to teach you um, skills to to manage your depression or your emotions, um, to lead a lifestyle that is going to um, improve your mental health and, you know, teach you skills for managing your emotions and your thoughts. Um, so I think it's really important to speak to someone professional who can um, teach you the skills that you need to kind of manage your your condition and move on and you know cure it or just live with it um, and you know still thrive. Yeah, yeah. So, so for the listeners um, that are listening to us today, it's important for them to know that suicide is non-discriminative. It can affect and happen to anybody. And it is therefore important to identify what makes someone vulnerable or risk of suicide. Can you talk us a little bit about that and, and what some of those risk factors are? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, someone who's been dealing with depression or you suspect has been dealing with depression for a long time but has been undiagnosed or untreated, um, you know, unless you get treatment and get diagnosed, there's, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Um, so... If someone is struggling mentally and they aren't getting professional help, you know, they're at risk of suicide because their condition is only going to get worse. Yeah. I think also, you know, stigma around mm. mental illness and um, barriers in receiving treatment, it's very difficult to to open up and to talk about it and to ask for help mm. if everyone around you has a stigma about mental health, if you're going to be labelled as um, you know, crazy or weak because mm. you you have um, this condition. And, you know, when I first came back to South Africa um, and I started seeing a psychiatrist, you know, I was trying to get my life back together and get back into um, the job market and so on. And my psychiatrist, I would have to go and see her once a month. So obviously I would have to speak to potential employers, you know, tell them, you know, like once a month I have to, um, you know, go for an hour or two the hospital um, for a checkup and my psychiatrist said to me don't tell them that it's for um, a mental health consultation um, because there is such a stigma around it you know it would be better if they thought that it was diabetes or some other kind of Mm -hmm. condition because you know some employers might not even want to employ someone with mental health issues Mm -hmm. and that was about five or six years ago and I think um, the the view on mental health is definitely changing. Like people are talking about depression more. There's a lot more acceptance of it, yeah. um, and the stigma is a little bit less. But I think there's still a long way to go breaking down that stigma yeah. and making it completely okay for people to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I think another risk factor is having um, existing illnesses that you know are difficult to deal with or might not have a cure like HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, or TV, anything that because that also leads to stigma and that 
kind of makes you feel hopeless. You almost feel like, okay, my life is over now. What else do I have to live for? I've got this this illness, um, which obviously isn't true. But um, you can, you know, if you feel, end up feeling hopeless and despairing of it, it could make you contemplate suicide and contemplate um, death. I think another risk factor then is also poverty. Um, you know, people are not people don't have the financial resources or even the mental resources to understand depression or to seek help and get treatment. Um, I think, you know, there, there, is, mental, there is mental health um, help and professional mental health services available to, to anyone in South Africa, but if you um, are from a lower income background um, and you have to go to a government hospital, you know, you can spend hours there waiting to be seen or to be treated, you just kind of have to wait your turn, um, which makes it really difficult to kind of get the help that you need. Uh, but there is help available. Um, and I think being in a, um, you know, experiencing poverty in another way is also, you just kind of feel like you have nothing to, to offer and you're under a lot of pressure just to make ends meet it all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, struggling to, to feed your family to um, often, that could definitely um, be a risk yeah. or cause risk of suicide as well. Yeah. And then lastly, I think um, being bullied and harassed, you know, teen suicide in South Africa is becoming more prevalent and, um, you know, I've been I was I've been bullied at school, um, and I I go around to schools now and I talk to them about mental health and depression and anxiety and it's scary how many kids come up to me after my talks to talk about their own experiences with depression and um, you know asking for help and not knowing where they can go for help um, and these are young people with their whole lives ahead of them they shouldn't be feeling this way or having to deal with this on their own. Um, and, you know, I think back to when I was bullied at school, social media wasn't really um, a thing back then. I, I graduated or I matriculated in 2005, so, you know, Facebook didn't even exist then. Um, and so I was bullied at school, but I could go home and, yes, the, the things that the bully said would kind of play over in my mind, but it wouldn't... Um, I, would, I could go home and I could kind of escape it. Whereas now with social media, um, those bullies can reach you anywhere. Um, you know, they can they can reach you over social media, um, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, there's no escape from it. Um, and I think, you know, even for, for teenagers who want to try and avoid that and avoid social media, you know, that makes them target for bullying in itself because, you know, other people, other teenagers might um, think, oh, why aren't they on Instagram or Facebook? You know, what do they have to hide? Um, or why are they, you know, it could make them seem uncool, um, which is also another um, reason for bullying and leads to um, to people contemplating suicide. Yeah, yeah. So often, you know, when, when someone commits suicide, their loved ones are left with many questions that often are unanswered like um why did they do it um what was the reason what happened 
uh, why didn't I see it coming? Why didn't they talk to me about it? So, you know, stats now tell us that people who attempt suicide will often talk about it or drop hints towards suicide. And in fact, 75% of all reported suicides gave some warning that it was going to happen. And, you know, listening to your story, I could hear that that you went through this yourself, that you were, that you were, you know, giving some signs by, you know, cancelling yeah. your Facebook account, um, telling your friends that you were going back to South Africa. So you were already giving those warning signs as well. Um, but but to, to assist our listeners, what are some of the other warning signs that they can look out for? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, having someone show sudden drastic like changes in their behavior, um, if they're suddenly um, doing things they wouldn't normally do, or if their mood is suddenly very different. You know, in my, the last month before my suicide attempt, um, I had, I'd been suffering with depression for a long time, and um, I, I, kind of, I tried to hide it, but I had a low mood. I often had a low mood um, in the months preceding my suicide attempt, but the last month, once I'd made that decision to um, attempt suicide, my mood lifted and I was suddenly a lot more outgoing and happy because I had this, I knew that in a month's time it was going to be over. I just had to hang in for a few more weeks and um, then I would be, I would have, I'd be able to escape this feeling. So. Um, like my mood changed drastically and I think, you know, I started um, drinking more, partying more um, and engaging in riskier behavior. You know, I um, had unprotected sex and I, like you say, I, I canceled my Facebook account. Um, so withdrawing from, from friends or um, family members and withdrawing from social activities, not doing things that you normally would enjoy, like if you enjoy, um, I don't know, playing golf with your friends and suddenly you're not going out and playing golf anymore. Yeah. Um, or making final arrangements, trying to tie up these ends, you know, mm-hmm. if, if people suddenly start um, apologizing or trying to make amends for something that they, that they did in the past, yeah. um, something that might have been like long forgotten, um, I think that's also a, a risk sign, a risk or a warning sign, um, because you, you know, you're trying to tie up loose ends and you're um, trying to kind of leave on a, a good note. And um, yeah, and I think also talking about death, um, someone who is maybe preoccupied with suicide or with death, or you know, what happens after death, um, is also a warning sign that. You know they're they're obviously thinking about this, mm. um, and you need to question why are they thinking about this? What, um, you know, what is what is their interest in it? Yeah. So, what can our listeners do if they identify some of these warning signs in themselves, perhaps, or, or in a or in a loved one who is feeling suicidal? So, I think if you yourself are feeling um, depressed or feeling suicidal um, or if you have are experiencing any of these warning signs that you maybe haven't put together in in terms of suicide or um, depression I think the first thing that you should do is talk to someone um, even if it's a loved one or um, 
a friend or a family member, just talk to someone and so that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go and ask them to encourage you to go and see a, a professional as well because you know your friends won't be able to, to teach you those skills, like I said earlier, um, that are going to help you through it. But if, you, if you're a loved one of someone who you think is um, feeling depressed or is contemplating suicide, I think um, the best thing you can do is First of all, show them your support, and yeah. if you if you worry that someone is contemplating suicide or feeling depressed, um, you know it's so easy for them if you ask them, "Are you fine?" to just respond, "Yes." Um, so those close-ended questions like, "Are you fine? Are you okay?" Um, you know, it's so easy to kind of mask or cover that up and um, and just shut down any conversation about it. So I think try and show your friend. Um, or your family member that you are noticing their behavior. Like if you say, or you know, I've noticed that you're you're not eating and you're not sleeping as much as you can. Um, you know, you're behaving differently to what you usually do. Like you don't usually make these kind of jokes, or um, you don't usually you're not usually so so rude to people. Um, what's going on? Um, you know, showing them that you are actually noticing their behavior um, and that you that you really proves to them that you really care and that you are taking note of them and it, yeah. it helps them to feel seen yeah. um, and they realize okay you know I'm not invisible um, I'm not um, alone in this there, is, there are people who care about me and who are taking note of what I'm going through um, so you know that just really helps them to feel less alone and then I think also, um, if you're a loved one and someone's struggling with depression, do everything you can to educate yourself about it. Mm. Um, because you know it's very difficult to know what to say to someone or um, you know how to show them support if you don't, if you haven't been through it yourself. Um, and as much as you love them and want to support them, you might struggle to, to kind of um, say the right thing or do the right thing. And um, but I think. All you need is just to be there for them, and um, so educate yourself about it, and you know, talk to them about it um, in a way that you understand. And I think if you're someone who's struggling with depression, just the, the thought of um, you know trying to do research or trying to find out about your, your condition, that whole task seems daunting. So if you have a friend who who is supporting you in that and who's helping you do that research and is, um, you know, educating themselves about it as well. It really helps you to feel less alone. It takes kind of the weight of some of that burden yeah. off of you. Yeah. I think it's an amazing tip. I, re- I really love that. Um, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you, Daryl. And I, I think it is so important for us to talk through our problems and share our stories as it may inspire others to speak up and get help. So if you are feeling suicidal or know someone who does, please speak to someone about it. It can be anyone, but most importantly, reach out to a professional, such as your employee wellbeing program or any other amazing organization that is out there that can help. We will provide some details to these resources at the bottom of the link to this podcast. Look after yourselves and be kind to others. Hello everyone, you are listening to the monthly version of the Healthy Choices podcast and today we will be chatting about mental health awareness. 
According to a recent study, one in four South African employees suffer from depression. How does depression impact one's life and what effect does it have on families, the workplace, communities and the South African economy? As we mentioned in our previous podcast talking about suicide prevention, we know that untreated depression can be a leading cause of suicide. We also know that more men are at risk of dying from suicide than women in a country that has about 23 suicides and 230 attempts every day. That is almost one suicide for every hour of the day. For every one female suicide, there are over four men committing suicide. It is World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October, and due to the shame and fear so many men feel when it comes to dealing with mental health issues, we will be focusing on men and depression to help break down the walls of stigma and encourage men to seek support. Depression amongst men is common and often goes untreated and undiagnosed as stigma plays a major role in deterring men in seeking help. To raise awareness and to join me in our conversation on men and depression, I would like to welcome Richard Hawkey. He's a husband, a father, businessman, applied psychologist, author of Life Less Lived, founder of Hello Foster and an advocate for mental health. Richard, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You have been involved in the mental health industry for several years. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this business. Um, so I got into this business through experience, and an experience that I wasn't anticipating having. Uh, I was working in the corporate world, uh, and I suffered a stress-related burnout, um, something that I didn't know about, uh, and it progressed into a severe clinical depression. So I went from a state of being a a highly functioning individual, fairly grumpy most of the time, um, exhausted, and we'll probably go through a few more of those uh, symptoms later on, uh, but still managing to to, uh, achieve things on a daily basis. And I went from being that person to literally not being able to function, not being able to get out of bed, drive a car, buy a loaf of bread from the shops uh, within the space of about 10 days. So um, for me, it was... uh, it was a very personal thing that happened. It might sound like a silly thing to say, uh, but I was very shocked that I didn't know about this. Uh, I didn't know. I knew that stress is bad for you. I knew that you know you've got to look after yourself, um, but I didn't understand that it can have consequences other than you know high blood pressure and heart attacks, which are the ones I think you know get a lot of a lot of airtime. Um, and you know I was also horribly ignorant about things like depression. Um, why would someone like me get depressed? You know, I'm happily married, I've had a good job, house in the suburbs, all the sort of things that tells us life is supposed to be good. So why on earth would I get depressed? So I wanted to learn more um, because I hadn't been taught about this. And if I was in a position in an organisation of uh, being responsible for other people who reported to me, um, how on earth am I, was I allowed to be in a position of leadership? where I couldn't even look after myself. So I think that that's what spurred me to, to get involved, is to learn, learn more about this. Um, not only from a personal perspective, because there is, there is extraordinary personal um, distress uh, that is involved, uh, but also from an organisational perspective, to understand, well, you know, th- this is not a soft issue. Um, I actually don't, I really don't like that term soft issue. Mm. We talk about, and we talk about soft skills in organisations. I think anything that impacts the ability of your most valuable assets, your human assets, because uh, all companies 
tell us that their human, their employees are their most valuable assets. Um, anything that impacts the health and the ability of them to be uh, productive, creative, engaged um, is a bottom line issue. So that was the that was my impetus for for really getting involved. So take us through. You, you mentioned a few things that I want to discuss. Um, burnout being one of them, but take us through your first initial steps. Once you've obviously realised what you were going through, you identified it. What did you do then? Did you go speak to a GP? Was mm. it a psychologist? Take mm. us through that. Mm. So I was very fortunate in that um, I had a very good support system around me. So my my wife recognised that um, you know the, the level of exhaustion that I had, the, some of the symptoms that I was displaying weren't. They, you know, they were they were more than just the common cold or, or just you know having a rough week at work and being a bit tired. Yeah. And she actually said, "Look, you need to go and see a doctor." So I did go and see a GP, um, and uh, that GP explained, "You know, this is probably what's happened. You burn, you're burning out, or you have burnt out, and you're slipping into a clinical depression," which initially was something I kind of resisted because, as I said, it's it's not the kind of thing that I I knew anything about. I was ignorant and arrogant about it, um, but. Uh, I do believe in um, Western medicine, um, not solely, but I do believe that it, you know, it has a role to play. Um, I've been a lifelong asthmatic as well, so I do understand that taking medication has a beneficial impact. Yeah. I'm not suggesting it is the only thing mm. we need to do. Mm. So um, I was uh, recommended to go onto some medication. Um, it was explained very briefly to me about the, the sort of um, cocktail of chemicals that our brain, that float around our brain and um, how they do and don't function and how this can uh, maybe linked to, uh, to depression and how the medication works. Mm. Uh, so I started taking medication. Unfortunately, I experienced um, a lot of the, the negative side effects and none of the benefits. Uh, and it was after probably a few weeks of dealing with that um, that I actually eventually then went and saw a psychiatrist, and again, for me, it was uh, it was quite a step to to get over that my own mental stereotype of what a psychiatrist meant. Um, and and at that point in time, I started yes, getting the the, the correct specialist treatment. Um, and following that, I engaged in uh, a type of therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, to help me understand how I may have been responsible for much of my own stress in terms of the way I viewed the world, in terms of the way I wanted to control things, be a perfectionist, be time urgent about this. And I know many of the listeners will be going, oh my goodness, that's me. Um, well, yes, you know, a lot of us are like that and it's not all bad news. You know, we get stuff done. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing is if you are that kind of personality type, you often get things done at the cost of yourself and, and the cost of those around you. Mm. Um, so cognitive behavioural therapy helped understand, helped me understand myself better and helped me understand uh, how I could change how I view things and ultimately how that mm. impacted my behaviours. Mm. And on top of that, I made some, some lifestyle changes as well. Mm. You know, I, I started exercising more, I cut down on caffeine, I concentrated more on what I was eating. Um, I started to do some mindfulness meditation. So I, I, I took quite a holistic view of things. Um, and I think for me, it was quite an easy decision to make because uh, while I was going through the worst parts of the depression, um, I got to a very dark place where uh, I was never actively suicidal. So I'm very fortunate for that. But I, I certainly reached a point where I understood 
why people who seemingly have everything going for them, why someone would take their life when I could no longer feel any positive emotions, I could no longer feel any love for my family, um, I could no longer take any pleasure from any smells or tastes or textures or, or, or anything around me, the you know, world was just various shades of grey. Um, it, it's, 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 it was understandable for me why people do take their lives. And so for me, in terms of addressing that, uh, I kind of, I suppose, applied my um, type A personality <laughs> to all the different types of treatment to make sure that I, you know, I, I tried to recover as best I could mm. and to try and manage that going forwards. So we did mention um, at the beginning of the podcast that undiagnosed and untreated depression is one of the leading causes to suicide. Mm. Do you think if you didn't take that stance um, in healing yourself, you would have had a different outcome? So, I mean, it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to go back and study as well um, and, and learn more more about psychology and more, and more about mental health, mental um, disorders. So uh, academia certainly says yes, and clinical research certainly says yes. Uh, I think there were a number of factors for me that were very important. Is, is yes, getting hold of the, the right medical uh, treatment, um, having a support system around me. I'm very fortunate for that, and I do understand you know, that's not the same for many people. Mm. Um, so it is necessary to find that somewhere else, and there are many organisations where you can find some kind of psychosocial support. Um, but it was also, I think, it, it was that desire to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think uh, I'd gone past the point of caring what uh, society would think of me. Uh, I, I, I was past that point. Mm. Um, and it was really very much about self-preservation and, and wanting to make sure I never went back to that very, very dark place. Mm. So again, you, you touched on a few things that I want to talk about. Again, I, I want to just um, follow up on, you mentioned burnout. And now we hear burnout thrown in mm. headlines and in conversations, mm. but it sounds like just a very fancy word. What does it actually mean? So interestingly, the World Health Organization has now actually classified burnout as an organizational condition, um, not as a medical condition. Yes, it, 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 I mean, some of that is semantics. It, it, is, it does manifest itself in medical um, symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it is brought about by excess pressure and stress and inability to cope in the workplace, mm -hmm. uh, which unfortunately is a um, increasing nature of the sort of urban, yeah. westernized work environment mm. and the crazy, mm. crazy lives that we mm. lead. So, um, you know, it's extreme exhaustion, mm. uh, the, the disassociation, the lack of engagement, the lack of um, uh, enjoyment in things, the lack of creativity, the lack of uh, reduced productivity, which unfortunately all those things tend to then compound mm. the stress that gets put on you. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is what burnout is. It, you know, it, it mimics many of the symptoms of depression, mm -hmm. and very generally, um, it's not something that gets better by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs some form of intervention, either by the individual themselves or, or some kind of medical intervention to do something about it. Yeah. And there is lots that can be done about it. That's the great thing. Mm -hmm. Um fascinated that you took the stance that you know when you were going through your depression um, you 
weren't too bothered about what society thought about you and you, you did what you had to do. However, for many other people, um, especially when it comes to mental health, there is this massive stigma mm. um, that in, it inhibits people from seeking help, mm. from getting the treatment, from talking about it. Mm. Um, why is it so bad in South Africa? But then again, we are focusing on men and depression. It has a special touch on men in particular. Mm. Mm. So I think you know that there's a lot of socialization around um, how men are supposed to behave. Mm. Um, uh, and it's not just in South Africa. Yes, I mean, there is quite a, a patriarchal-led um, society. And, and this kind of cuts across cultures as well. You know, the, the man is the, is the strong one. The man is the... And I'm using sort of inverted mm. commas here. You know, the man is the, is the, is, is the hairy-chested hunter. Mm. Um, and, and again, you know, socially, we have different ways of dealing with our... Um, disquiet when we're not feeling happy when we're feeling upset or whatever you know there's almost a social acceptance that um, it's okay for a man to be a little bit grumpy and maybe a man to be a little bit aggressive and violent mm. um, whereas it's not okay for a woman to do that it's more okay for a woman to to be weepy to you know to huddle together with her friends have a bit of a cry have some coffee talk about it and, and men don't do that um, it's also a little bit societally or socially more acceptable for many men to, to self-medicate. So, you know, oh, I've had a rough day at work, rough week, Leo, let's go out and, and have a few beers with the boys. Or, you know, let's come home after a rough day at work. I just, you know, I need a few, a few drinks just to calm down. Um, and that is, is, is the sort of the socialization that we've, been, we've grown up with. To say, you know, when you fall down and graze your knee, or don't cry, and you know, all those kinds of things. And I mean, that sound might sound like a, a silly example, mm -hmm. but those um, social stereotypes are reinforced throughout throughout our upbringing. Mm -hmm. So whether we consciously think about it or not, that there is this role that men are supposed to play. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is changing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in some societies it's changing faster than others. I, I'm not so sure that. You know, South Africa is perhaps uh, the same as maybe some of the Scandinavian countries, for example. Um, but there is very definitely still that that view that the man, you know, needs to be strong. And what strong means? Strong means does not show means showing those kinds of emotions. Yeah. Um, so you did touch on some of the signs um, and symptoms of uh, burnout. Now, and you did mention that it's very similar to depression. So when we are talking about specifically signs and symptoms of depression, are they very similar between men and women, or is it a, the same across the board? No, uh, and again, um, I mean, yes and no, which is a, not, a, not a helpful answer. There, there is a sort of a common basket of symptoms, um, physical, cognitive, so, you know, how we think, and as, as well as emotional and behavioral symptoms. Um, but we don't all experience the same one. So I don't know, maybe it'll be helpful if I just list a whole load. Um, and, and, and for those listeners out there who recognize some of them, just because you recognize some of them doesn't necessarily mean you, are, you have a clinical depression. You need to understand that if these symptoms you're experiencing are impacting your life 
to the ability where you can't function fully at work and function in your relationships, it's at that point in time you really do need to go and seek medical help. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the really common ones are, are, are obviously a, a, um, a sense of sadness, a sense of lack of enjoyment in things. Mm-hmm. Um, things you used to do that you know used to give you a sense of pleasure and enjoyment no longer do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very often sleeping disorders that come along with it. So either the need to um, feel like you need to sleep all the time or you wake up in the middle of the night, struggle to get back to sleep, um, but you're, you're chronically fatigued, you're exhausted all the time, which unfortunately we can, um, we can explain away because, hey, we're all living these busy lives, mm-hmm. hey, so it's, not, it's natural that we're tired all the time. Yeah. Well, actually it isn't. Uh, we just get used to these things. Mm. Um, there can be appetite disruptions. So a lot of people, as they slip into depression, um, will actually, because of the, the, the lack of desire, the lack of enjoyment out of eating things, the, the, the appetite can either completely reduce mm-hmm. and be associated with a, quite a rapid loss of weight, or, cons- or consequently it can also be, um, you can gain a lot of weight because you start to crave a lot of fatty sweet foods. Mm. Comfort eating. Comfort eating, <laughs> yes. Again, so again, you know, once or twice, you know, we do these things, that does not mm. necessarily make a passion. Yeah. It's when we start to recognise the patterns. Um, there can be a lot of anger involved here as well. So psychologists call it emotional dysregulation. Mm. So the inability to express or experience a relevant emotion for a relevant situation so you know getting extraordinarily angry Mm. over a very small incident um, becoming extraordinarily tearful Mm. over something that is not such a you know a big deal that you wouldn't have usually cried about those are some of the some some of the signs Um, sexual desire is another one that you know again a lot of people don't want to talk about Mm. because of you know the nature of um, of intimacy um, but certainly a reduction in one's normal sexual desire. Um, and from a male perspective, it, it may go, you know, it goes beyond the, um, the necessary desire, but also the inability to perform. So mm-hmm. erectile dysfunction can, can start to creep in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are some of the broad, broad symptoms. Okay. So it just sounds like it's, it's quite a drastic change in your normal behaviour. Yes, yeah. yes. And I mean, and, and, it, and it may happen slowly over time mm-hmm. and you get used to a lot of these things or it may happen quite rapidly where you go from, yeah, being quite tired and a bit grumpy and, you know, yes, you're not doing as much exercise and you're not going out for, to see your friends at the weekend like you used to because, hey, you're tired. And then it may fall off a cliff very, very rapidly mm-hmm. where, where the symptoms become overwhelming. Yeah. So the common practice when someone gets the sniffles or the flu or you know a sore throat is we'll see how it goes for f- for a few days or a few weeks and then only we'll we'll see a doctor for it mm. um, because we, we kind of want to deal with these things ourselves. How does it work for depression? You come across some of, you identify with some of these signs and symptoms of depression. Okay, this sounds like me. I may have a bit of depression or. Um, it's obvious because I'm going through a bit of a break. I'm going through a breakup, or I'm mm. having issues in my marriage. Mm. It will pass mm. over time. Mm. How important is it to actually speak to someone or get help for something, for some of those symptoms that you are talking about? Um, is it quite serious, um, or is it something that you can just sort of, sort of let go by? So, uh, again, I would say no. Um, if 
the rule of thumb is, is understanding how much it's impacting your ability to function on a daily basis and how much joy you're still managing and, and to experience in life and, and, and live life to the full. Yes, there, I mean, there is a difference between trauma um, and a difference between grief um, and depression. So it is completely and utterly normal, in inverted commas, to experience trauma and grief, you know, during a breakup of a relationship or the death of a loved one or, or some traumatic event that's happened. Absolutely, that, is, that doesn't mean you are depressed. Um, and with the right kind of support and the acknowledgement that something extraordinary is going on in your life, um, that can pass. I think the keys here are being aware of it. So being that, having that self-awareness and admitting it and saying, look, something is going on. I don't like the way I'm feeling. Mm. Um, I'm going to do something about it. Mm. So again, in, in um, situations of grief, uh, when we lose a loved one or break up a relationship, again, those are quite sort of societally well understood. Mm. So to be able to go and talk to someone, to be able to cry about losing a loved one is more accepted. Mm. Um, and part of that process, mm. whereas if, if you don't know what is causing it, you, that, that is when we tend to sort of go internal mm. and, we, and we tend not to do anything about yeah. it. The, the horrible thing, one, a doctor once said to me that if depression was a virus, it would be the perfect virus because it feeds on itself. So the more negative you feel and the more of these symptoms you experience, the more negative you feel, the more negative you experience, and, and so it's spir and it can spiral mm. down very rapidly. Mm. So quite often, um, if you don't have that self-awareness, if you don't have that desire to do something about it, um, it often doesn't get better by itself. Mm. It, it, it kind of escalates negatively over time. So always is the right time to have a talk to someone. If you're not sure, have a talk to someone. And it can be anybody. It doesn't Absolutely. have to be a professional at this Absolutely. time moment. It can be a loved one. It can be a colleague, your boss, as long as it is somebody you speak it to. Absolutely. And, and again, through the help of podcasts like this, more and more people are becoming aware of these things. Um, and the prevalence is so high that while um, they might not understand your particular set of circumstances, the chances are that you know they've heard about this mm. um, and there are a lot of other people going through it. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is never a good time to stay silent. It's always a good time to, t to speak to someone about it. Yeah. So I have a feeling of what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If you had one message um, for Mental Health Awareness Day, what would it be? So um, very briefly, we all have mental health. Um, just like we all have physical health. And I know that's not a, a very original comment. Um, we need to take care of our mental health. Our mental health can be good and it can be bad and it can fluctuate in between. Acknowledge that. We are, our mental health and our physical health are not separate from each other. They're in, we're an integrated whole. Um, be kind to yourself. You owe it to yourself and those around you. Speak up if you don't like the way you're feeling. Chances are there's a lot that can be done about it. You just need to speak to someone about it and, and, and take care of yourself. Taking care of yourself is not a selfish thing to do. Mm. Taking care of yourself is a very selfless thing because it allows you to carry on giving to your family, to your organisation, to the society around you. So speak to someone. Thank you so much.
wonderful thank, message. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Richard, for talking about this fascinating topic with us. Um, we have run out of time and we could keep talking about this if, if we had the opportunity. Um, we most likely will have another segment um, sometime towards the end of the year. So um, stay tuned and keep listening. Thank you. Good day. You're listening to the monthly podcast from Healthy Choices. Um, and today we'll be speaking about mental health awareness. So according to a recent study, one in four South African employees suffer from depression. How does depression impact one's life and what effect does it have on families, the workplace, communities and the South African economy? As we mentioned in our previous podcast talking about suicide prevention, we know that untreated depression can be a leading cause of suicide. We also know that more men are at risk of dying from suicide than women in a country that has about 23 suicides and 230 attempts every day. That is almost one suicide for every hour of the day. And for every one female suicide, there are over four men committing suicide. It is World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October, and due to the shame and fear so many men feel when it comes to dealing with mental health issues, we will be focusing on men and depression to help break down the walls of stigma and encourage men to seek support. Depression amongst men is common and often goes untreated and undiagnosed, as stigma plays a major role in deterring men in seeking help. To help me raise awareness and join me in our discussion on men and depression, I would like to welcome Richard Hawkey. He is a husband, father, businessman, applied psychologist, author of A Life Less Lived, founder of Hello Foster and an advocate for mental health. Hi, Richard. Hello, Beryl. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. So, um, Richard, you have been involved in the mental health industry for several years. Tell, it, tell us a little bit about how you got into this business. So I got involved um, through my own personal experiences uh, of mental illness. Uh, I was working in the corporate uh, world and I experienced a stress-related burnout which progressed into a severe clinical depression where um, I was uh, classified as temporarily disabled. Um, I could no longer work. So for me it was a very, uh, very personally shocking experience and I mean that that sounds really silly because it is an unpleasant experience but I, I was quite shocked that I didn't know about this um, and for me wanting to find out more how I had mismanaged my own health so badly that I could end up being temporarily disabled uh, was something that drove me to learn more about it and, and, and that path has just led me to get more and more involved um, because we do know a lot about this and I was quite shocked to know that uh, as someone working in the corporate world, having you know been to several universities and uh, studied commercial kinds of degrees, I wasn't taught about any of this stuff. And that just seemed crazy to me um, because it's, it's, it's so prevalent, um, it's affecting so many people, which in turn means it's affecting so many organisations. Mm. And that's really how I got involved. So take us through some of the initial steps um, and, and the processes that you that you followed after realising that you were going through um, possible depression. So uh, I was diagnosed by uh, my GP um, that I had done a very good job of burning myself out, I think those were the exact words used, uh, and that I was slipping into a clinical depression. Um, and initially I kind of resisted that because 
I didn't understand what depression was. I had I had very um, skewed and ignorant views of what depression meant. I didn't think someone like me could get depression. And by someone like me, I mean I was ha- you know I'm happily married. I've two kids, house in the suburbs, um, too many remote controls. So you know I'm privileged um, living a good suburban life. Uh, to my mind, uh, how could someone like that become depressed? Uh, so I, I resisted that initially, uh, but I did start taking the medication. Uh, I've also been a lifelong asthmatic, so I know that pharma, pharm, you know, pharmacotherapy um, has a place. It's not necessarily the only treatment, but I took the antidepressants. Um, unfortunately, I experienced quite a lot of the side effects of those antidepressants, and it took a while to find the right medication for me. Um, on top of that, I also engaged in cognitive behavioural therapy to help me understand how I had become depressed, how I had burnt myself out, um, what it what it was about my views of the world, my desire to be a perfectionist and be a control freak, um, and just how I viewed the world, how that shaped my behaviours and ultimately compounded the kind of stress that I was experiencing uh, and gave me some tools to deal with it. Um, And I also, on top of that, I also made some lifestyle changes around exercise, what I ate and drank, um, spending some time doing mindfulness meditation, those kinds of things. So I kind of, I went at it like a bit of a bull in a china shop. Mm -hmm. I, I took the medication, I engaged in psychotherapy and I made some lifestyle changes. Um, and and that was the sort of the yeah the basket of things that I did to uh, to start to recover um, and and now to continually manage that process. So you mentioned burnout. So help me understand and break that down a little bit because we do hear that quite often. Um, and is it a clinically recognised? illness so absolutely i think it's a a fantastic question to ask Um, and it's very timely because very recently the world health organization has actually defined burnout as an organizational condition so you know just like you can get um, repetitive stress disorder from uh, doing certain physical activities over and over again as part of your job um, you Burnout is recognised as being as being the majorly triggered uh, by your work environment, by um, the physical environment, by the um, workload, your ability to meet the tasks and the deadlines that are given to you, the amount of control you have over those tasks, and those kinds of things. So I want to speak about stigma a little bit. And we know that stigma inhibits many people from actually seeking help, from being able to speak out to a partner, a loved one, never mind even a professional. How did that play a role in you um, going through your process? So I think by the time I sought help, um, I didn't have a choice. Uh, I had become so dysfunctional that um, I was no longer circulating in society. So... Um, you know, my friends, colleagues didn't know what was happening. I just wasn't at work. Uh, you know, I wasn't going out to, to dinner parties at the weekend. Um, and that, that didn't really bother me. Uh, at that stage, uh, I just I wanted to do whatever I needed to do to try to get better, to try to get back to a, a functioning life. Um, however, I was very fortunate in having that, 
uh, familial support uh, from my wife and family um, who were very non, who were completely non-judgmental about what I was going through um, and uh, didn't put any conditions on me. And a lot of people don't experience that. Mm. Uh, and I think that does compound to some of the stigma. Uh, we also live in an environment in many organizations where for many people perversely stress is almost a badge of honor if you show how stressed you are that must mean you're working hard mm. and it must mean therefore yeah. that you're adding value to the organization yeah. Yeah. so we have this kind of this perverse topsy-turvy view of um, if if we're stressed and burning out, well, we're doing it for the good of the company, yeah. uh, which you know couldn't be further from the truth. Because if you're stressed and burning out, you're not terribly creative. You're making more mistakes than mm. normal. Mm. Um, you know, you, you're actually not an engaged, creative, productive mm. individual. Mm. So there is no doubt that the societal stigma is there. That's reinforced by um, our views of what we see as success and strength. Um, and for many, specifically on a gender basis, for many men, that definition of strength comes from not talking about your emotions, um, you know, don't cry in public, don't cry if things hurt, just kind of suck it up. Um, you know, what's that terrible expression? Put your big girl panties on, uh, you know, maybe go and have a few beers after work with the boys. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the way societally for many of us that's the accepted way of talking of dealing with these kinds of things yeah so I, I want to obviously place a little bit more focus on on men and depression um, is there a significant difference between men and women when it comes to the signs and symptoms of depression so there are certainly certain things that can manifest differently um, the Depression is a whole body illness, um, so we get not only physical symptoms such as, as, as exhaustion, um, aches and pains, recurring headaches, um, tummy upsets, uh, sleep disturbances, either wanting to sleep all the time and still feeling exhausted or waking up in the middle of the night not being able to get back to sleep, feeling quite sort of anxious and tossing and turning. Um, we have appetite disruptions in terms of just not being interested in food anymore yeah. and losing weight or being interested in far too many sort of greasy fatty sweet foods uh, you know comfort eating kind of things um, so those are those are some of the physical symptoms and we may or may not experience some or all of those mm. um, where we do start to see some differences uh, from a gender perspective are perhaps in, in some of the behaviors and the emotional side of things so and a lot of this might have something to do with the socialization of the gender roles in our society. Um, so emotional dysregulation is what the psychologists call it, our inability to have a measured emotional response to a particular situation. Uh, we will have an overreaction. Mm -hmm. um, for men, that can often be an overreaction of anger and violence. Whereas a, for, for many ladies, it can be an overreaction of um, uh, being tearful and uh, sort of highly emotional mm. around that. So those are some of, the, some of the differences, but not necessarily. You know, there's no hard and fast rule here. So I want to touch on, on, on two different things here. Um, we do know that untreated and undiagnosed depression can lead to suicide. So how important is it when you identify yourself uh, in some of these signs and symptoms, how important is it to actually go and get help? 
incredibly important. Uh, and I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of the first most important and most powerful element of a sustainable recovery and management of, of chronic conditions like depression, and that is that self-awareness. So if you are listening to this or um, you know someone and you want to have a chat with them, you need to recognize that the way you're feeling you don't like and you want to do something about it. So that desire to change the way you feel and, and acknowledge that you're not feeling great um, is very powerful. The, I once spoke with a doctor and they described depression to me as if it was a virus, it would be a perfect virus because it feeds on itself. So to get back to answer your question, should you do something about this? If you are experiencing a clinical depression and there is nothing else, nobody else intervening in your life to help you, the chances of it getting better by itself are slim. So it is always a good time to go and speak to somebody. Um, if you recognize that you don't like the way you're feeling and you want to do something about it, go and talk to someone. Uh, that is the, the most beneficial thing you can do for yourself today. So it is Mental Health Awareness Day on the 10th of October and Richard I want to find out from you what would be your one message um, to the listeners on this particular topic? Take care of yourself. Um, looking after yourself and investing in your own health is not a selfish thing to do. It is a selfless thing because if you look after yourself then you are vital, engaged, creative, productive and able to influence the people around you in your life in a positive fashion. Mm. So just like we all have physical health, which comes and goes and you know we get colds and flu and tummy upsets and whatever else goes on with us physically, we have mental health as well. And that can you know also range from being very good to, to being bad. And we need to understand that these are not separate entities, they are interrelated. And we need to look after and acknowledge our mental health as much as we do our physical health. And that it's okay to do that and it's actually a very responsible thing to do um, and that if you are unsure you need to talk to somebody about it because we weren't taught about this at school or varsity most of us at university and, and a lot of people in our jobs we haven't been taught about this so we don't know the answers mm. there are no stupid questions mm. go and speak to someone and, and find out the answers for you it's your right and you owe it to yourself Thank you very much, Richard. Um, it was, a, as it always is, a fascinating conversation. Um, and we can definitely keep going on. And um, we will definitely have some future mental health uh, podcasts that we will be having in the near future. So please stay listening. Um, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. And um, we really appreciate your contribution. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And uh, thank you for helping raise awareness. It's a pleasure. Thank you to all of you for listening. Um, look after yourself and others.